If you're like me, the first thing you do when traveling is check out what's happening with the local food scene, right? And as I've been planning my big book tour and live podcast tapings all around the country, man, I am very excited to eat my way across the nation. There's Atlanta, there's Miami, and so many more. Going to local restaurants gives you a great taste of that place. And if you pay your bill with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum Amex, you get double miles at restaurants. Getting a taste of local food is the best way to get to know the local culture. And if you travel, you know that's how it's done. The Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Famous Amos chocolate chip cookies are so iconic that I just say Famous Amos and it's like I can taste it. Each cookie is filled with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. And the word satisfying is very key there because some cookies are crunchy and brittle, and I don't like that. But Famous Amos has a deep, tooth-sinkable, satisfying crunch that I know and love. And Famous Amos classic bite-sized chocolate chip cookies are bringing back the original recipe that everyone knows and loves. One perfect bite, everything classic in a cookie. Find Famous Amos cookies anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Our first issue under my leadership was for New Year's, and the recipes were for cornbread, black eyed peas, a baked ham, and greens. And one of the readers wrote and told me that the cornbread recipe was wrong because the mix was sweetened and you did not put sugar in cornbread. And I mean, that's a, a big point of controversy. Right. Sugar in the cornbread. And she sent me her recipe so that I would have a correct recipe <laughs> for cornbread. Did you try it? No, I don't think I did. <laughs> This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. This week, ahead of Juneteenth, we're kicking off a three-part series called By Us, For Everyone. It's a look at how Black American food is represented in media, past and present, and how those portrayals change when Black people are in charge of them. I think I have, like, one big goal, and that was to bust through the door and keep it open for other black and brown people who wanted to work in food media. Over these episodes, we'll share the stories of several influential cookbook authors, food editors, and publishers from the past century. Being a black publisher in 2022, that's out here getting it. Like, there's still not too many of us out here. And we begin today with the story of the first food editor at Ebony Magazine. For decades before the internet, Ebony was where many Black Americans turned for recipes. Ebony was created by Black people, and it spoke directly to Black people, bringing together fashion, food, celebrities, and more to depict a lifestyle. I grew up with Ebony, and I remember it as a young girl. And this was Jim Crow era, when everything was divided. This is Donna Battle Pierce. She's a food writer and historian, and she's writing a book about Ebony's first food editor. Donna was inspired to write the book in part because Ebony had such an impact on her as a young woman. We had very little control over what media said about us. Things were constantly being made fun of or ridiculed. She says growing up in the 50s and 60s, Black people and their food were rarely represented at all in white-owned media. When they were, it was usually as stereotypical servants. Think Aunt Jemima or Uncle Ben. Donna grew up in a middle-class Black community in Columbia, Missouri. 
Her mother had a doctorate in education, and her father was a school principal. But she rarely saw her own experience reflected back to her in media. The parties that your parents gave and the, you know, the wonderful society groups and church and all of that did have people that were well-educated and well-dressed and intellectual and all of that. And so that's the division that Black people knew the both parts of and white people had no idea about. So Ebony was very meaningful because it brought that part of, of our culture into our lives and highlighted those people. And Ebony said, yes, here they are. Ebony's first issue came out in 1945. The magazine's founder and publisher, John H. Johnson, grew up in Arkansas, moved to Chicago, and would make millions in the publishing business. He said Ebony's mission was to paint a fuller picture of Black America, to show Black people falling in love, getting married, gathering together, and doing it in style. It was part representation, part aspiration. The person who set the tone for Ebony's food coverage from its very early days was its first food editor, Frida DeKnight. She was a very uh, adaptable, very inquisitive, and totally enthralled with food and cooking. Frida was born in the early 1900s in Topeka, Kansas. Donna says based on that time frame, her grandparents were probably enslaved. Her father died when she was two, and her mother was a traveling nurse, so she was often away. Frida was mostly raised in South Dakota by her aunt and uncle, Paul and Mamie Scott. The Scots were caterers. Donna says they were well-known in their area of South Dakota, where they cooked mostly for white people. They were introducing dishes to people, and they were cooking the chickens they raised, and they were cooking the wonderful vegetables, you know, eggplants, and they were using seasonings that maybe some people had not been exposed to. Even as a young child, Frida helped out. She once told an interviewer that by the time she was five, she could bake biscuits and garnish plates. She said, quote, instead of cutting out paper dolls and playing house, I was cutting out recipes and playing cook. The Scots didn't just expose Frida to a wide range of flavors. They also exposed her to a lifestyle, good food and good living. The family was well off. Their catering business was successful and they owned land. Frida graduated from Dakota Wesleyan University with a major in home economics and moved to New York City, where she worked as a dancer and a teacher. She was in her 30s when she married Renee DeKnight, a pianist for the Delta Rhythm Boys. This was in the wake of the Harlem Renaissance. They traveled everywhere, back and forth to Chicago, to California, traveled all over Europe. She'd always had a deep interest in all kinds of food. She'd always associated with immigrants from all different places and had been open to the dishes that people taught her. Then, of course, Europe just redefined some of that, just helped her to really jump in and learn more, as it does for lots of cooks, learn more about recipes and ingredients and dishes. One night in about 1945, Frida was visiting Chicago. She was invited to dinner at a well-to-do friend's house. At the last minute, the hosts learned that their caterer had been in an accident, wouldn't be able to make it. Frida stepped in and cooked the meal herself. The guests were blown away. And one of those guests just happened to be John H. Johnson, the founder and publisher of Ebony. He was so impressed that he asked Frida to send him the menu. She wrote it all up in an engaging narrative style that made cooking sound fun. He offered her a job. 
As Ebony's food editor, Frida wrote a regular recipe column called Date with a Dish. And she featured black celebrities of the day, Lena Horne making East Indian chicken, Dorothy Dandridge making cinnamon buns. A photo of Nat King Cole ran with Frida's tamale pie recipe. He was said to be a fan of it. In 1948, she published her first and only cookbook, also called Date with a Dish. It would later be re-released in the 60s as the Ebony Cookbook. It's an encyclopedia of recipes, from roast lamb and wine, to spiced pig's feet, to Spanish rice. Frida made her mission clear in the book's introduction. I asked Donna to read an excerpt from it. It is a fallacy long disproved that Negro cooks, chefs, caterers, and homemakers can adapt themselves only to the standard Southern dishes. Like other Americans living in various sections of the country, they have naturally shown a desire to become versatile in the preparation of any dish, whether it's Spanish, Italian, or East Indian in origin. There are no set rules for dishes created by most Negroes. They just seem to have a way of taking a plain, everyday dish and improvising a gourmet's delight. This love for food has given them the desire to make their dishes different, well-seasoned, and eye-appealing. That's such a powerful quote to me because it's such it, – first of all, it's just such a clear mission statement. It's, this tells me that Frida DeKnight knew exactly what she wanted to do when she got put in charge at Ebony. It also, though, this sentiment that I see Frida DeKnight sharing in 1948 is one that I've talked to people in black food media – in the past few years who who are fighting the same battle to some degree. So seeing this quote was sort of some, for me at least, some combination of like inspiring and depressing. That the battle's still going on. Right. You know, this is 1948. So we're taught, so that, that 70 years later, excellent, talented black people in the world of American food media are still saying, you know, we're a lot more than soul food and having to make that case. Well, that's because editors, for the most part, are still people that have um, have that point of view. And editors have a very strong role in what's depicted. But at Ebony, Frida was the editor. She was the one who decided what foods were covered and how they were characterized. And she didn't just work behind the scenes. Her picture often appeared in the magazine alongside her columns and recipes for dishes like lobster thermidor, Swiss steak, and rice and beef cakes. As the 1950s went on, her star rose. She became a spokesperson for multiple brands and wrote about the business benefits of appealing to black consumers. She appeared on TV to share cooking tips and toured the country as a speaker at both black and white colleges. A leading home economist is Mrs. Frida DeKnight of Ebony Magazine. Her popular articles on food and home furnishings and her book, A Date with a Dish, have won international honor. This is from an old black and white video series from 1953, meant to highlight the contributions of black Americans. We don't actually hear Frida in the video, only the narrator. But just watching her, she moves around the kitchen like someone very comfortable being in charge. She gives instructions to a woman who seems to be taking careful notes. Then she holds up a cake and inspects it, offering commentary on it to an assistant. And only perfection rates the denied stamp of approval. Frida once said in an interview, quote, food can be glamorous. It can be something outside of kitchen drudgery. 
It's my aim to teach this to the Negro youth of this country, for too many of them assume the wrong attitude because their parents have associated hardship with it. Her favorite quote was, by us, for us, as opposed to the plantation-style cookbooks, which had been popular before. But she was talking about doing it for our culture, as opposed to doing it to be appreciated by the white culture. And she wanted to claim our part in all of American culture. In 1963, Frida Janite died of cancer. She was in her 50s, and she'd been at Ebony for 17 years. Negro Digest magazine, another Johnson publication, ran a five-page tribute. It began, quote, Through her astute knowledge and brilliant use of food and fashion, Frida Janite helped to forge a new image for American Negro women. Even though Donna never met Frida, she always felt a connection. The women in Donna's family passed down Frida's recipes, and both Donna's grandmothers happened to know Frida. They were friends. When Donna told her parents she wanted to go into food as a career, they weren't happy. Her parents were educators. Her dad was a principal who helped desegregate his school district. And they did not want me to do anything with food because they said that's something that Black people have always been known for. Wonderful to do for family, but not to do it as a career. But Frida showed Donna that a career in food could be both glamorous and important. After all, integration didn't only have to happen in schools. Donna went on to work as a test kitchen director and to become the first black food writer at the Chicago Tribune. I asked Donna how Frida's work has influenced her. She pauses. Then, before talking about Frida, goes back to her own childhood. It's been a full circle for me. I, I had a lot of anger that I had to really get over. I'm still getting rid of the anger of having grown up in the community I did, watching my father, who was this elegant administrator, and he too was elegant and had been a World War II veteran and college graduate. And watching, I was in the yard as a little girl watching a man walk by, and a drunk man walk by, a drunk white man, and call him boy. And my dad stood up tall, but he didn't say anything. And that's what... I know now that's what he had to do to be alive for us now. And that's still a vivid memory. I can be there. I see that. And so there's lots of things that Frida has helped me with in terms of how she insisted on bringing so many stories to the front. It's important for all of us to speak what we know as Black people. And that's the inspiration from Frida, for me. It feels like it's given you a purpose. It's helped direct my purpose. Mm -hmm. My passion has always been food and fashion. That was my major in college. And then to, to learn about her made me understand it, I, exactly what she went through and the nuances that are, are there. And um, it's given me a real determination you know, this is not this is not something you retire from. This is something I'll do forever because this is something that's very important to my life. In the time Frida was at Ebony, from the mid-40s to the mid-60s, its circulation doubled to a million readers a month. 
The magazine became the cornerstone of John H. Johnson's publishing company, which went on to launch Black World and Jet magazines, among others. But after Frida died, food became a lower priority at Ebony. It would be 20 years before they hired another full-time food editor, Sharla Draper. Coming up, I speak with Sharla, and we visit the Ebony Test Kitchen where she worked, which has just been restored as part of a new museum exhibit. Stick around. And now, a delicious word from our sponsors. Mm-mm, it's very good. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the choice hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com where travels come true. Recently, I went into my closet to try to get a collared shirt out, and it occurred to me that I don't think I have bought a new collared shirt in five years. I mean, every shirt in there was either really old or it had some kind of perma-stain situation or it probably never fit right in the first place. I got to freshen up a little bit here. It's time for something new right? And spring is coming. Now is the time if you've been looking to refresh your wardrobe, home, or skincare and beauty routines this season. Because you know, Walmart has genuinely surprising style finds that don't break the bank. This spring, there's only one destination for the latest fashion, home, and beauty inspired by real life. Walmart. I freshened up my wardrobe. I got some nice dress shirts, a couple light hoodies. You know, you need light hoodies for the springtime. Very useful, very comfortable. Discover surprisingly stylish new season favorites at Walmart now or shop it all on the Walmart app. Go to walmart.com slash now trending. That's walmart.com slash now trending. Now trending, your style at Walmart. It's been chilly here in the Northeast lately, and we have been on a big grilled cheese dipped into tomato sauce kick here in the Pashman household. And I've been making the grilled cheese with Hero sliced bread. The kids like the Hero classic white bread. I like the Hero seeded bread. It's fluffy, the crust is just right, and I like that the slices are sliced just a little bit thicker than a lot of other sliced breads. You griddle it in butter, you add some cheese, you dip it in the soup, phenomenal. And all the Hero breads are low in net carbs and they're high in fiber. All these Hero breads are delicious and flavorful. They'll give you that soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a refreshing BLT, savory breakfast burrito, or mouth-watering cheeseburger. So whether you're making homemade grilled cheese, BLT, maybe a tuna melt sounds nice on some Hero seeded bread. I bet that would be really good. Maybe you're doing sliders and the Hawaiian rolls. Whatever it is, Hero has the bread for you. Don't give up being a breadhead. And Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use code SPORKFUL at checkout. That's code SPORKFUL at H-E-R-O dot C-O. I recently discovered a new cut of steak that I am in love with. It's called the Bavette Steak. Have you heard of it? It's also known as Flap Steak. It's a little bit thicker than a flank steak. It is long and flat and tender. 
It literally melts in your mouth, and I discovered it thanks to Good Chop. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered right to your door on your schedule. Good Chop especially prides itself on sourcing meat that comes with no antibiotics or added hormones ever. No artificial ingredients, only the good stuff. And they're introducing me to cuts and fish that I just didn't know about. Rockfish. I've heard of rockfish. I just never bought it at a fish market. They sent me some wild-caught rockfish. So go to goodchop.com slash sporkful120 and use code sporkful120 to get $120 off your first four boxes. That's code sporkful120 at goodchop.com slash sporkful120 for $120 off. One more time, goodchop.com slash sporkful120 code sporkful120 welcome back to the sporkful i'm dan pashman and i have some extremely exciting news we are doing our first new york area live taping in two and a half years i'll be talking with the founders of omsom and brooklyn deli about marketing their asian inspired food products to a mass american audience what does it mean to be a proud and loud food brand, as Amsam likes to say? I think this conversation is going to be fun and thought-provoking, and there will be food samples and products for sale, including Sfolini's Cascatelli. It's going to be a blast. The show is Wednesday, July 20th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Tickets are on sale now on their site or go to sporkful.com slash live. I'll see you there. Okay, back to the show. While Frida DeKnight was working as the food editor at Ebony, Charlotte Draper was growing up on the south side of Chicago, about 10 miles from the Ebony building. Charlotte's parents subscribed to the magazine, and she even had a family friend who worked there. Well, we always had Ebony at the house. Probably by the time I got into high school, college, I could see the significance, some of the stories that Ebony would cover because Ebony, it was an aspirational magazine. You know, it demonstrated people who came from humble beginnings that went on to become justices on the Supreme Court, Thurgood Marshall. And it also demonstrated, you know, the lifestyle of some of the rich and famous, whether it would be Lena Horne or Sammy Davis Jr. Charlotte learned how to cook from her grandmothers. She says cooking is in her genes. In college, she majored in home economics with a minor in marketing. After she graduated in the 70s, she landed a job at Kraft, where that marketing minor came in handy. Because Kraft wasn't just interested in recipes, they were interested in the business of food. And for them, that included a focus on black consumers. The company worked with a black advertising agency, came up with marketing that targeted black Americans. And Charlotte was part of that effort. Craft was also where Sharla learned about the importance of food styling. If you're going to get people excited about a food product or a recipe, the food's got to look good. But when she opened up Ebony's food section around this time? It was um, pretty dreadful looking. How, I, how so? What made it dreadful looking? Well, it was very dark. It was extremely dark. So it wasn't colorful? Wasn't no, bright. it wasn't color. It was in color, but it was browns and blacks and, you know, nothing that would make the average person stop and say, wow, look at how good this looks. And uh, as I worked with Kraft and the advertising agency, I looked more closely. The food pages came under scrutiny. Charlotte knew what the issue at Ebony was. There was not an in-house food editor at that time. Frida DeKnight's role had gone unfilled for 20 years. In the wake of her death, the magazine was mostly just rerunning her old date with the dish columns. Charlotte saw an opportunity. 
She began to pester that family friend who worked at Ebony and finally got a meeting with Mr. Johnson. She took a food spread from a recent issue and revamped it, mocked it up how she thought it should be done. Colorful, enticing. She presented the two side by side to Mr. Johnson. In 1983, she got the job. She started working to make the food coverage more contemporary and added a popular feature called Reader Favorite Recipes. Readers would submit their recipes for a dish and Charlotte would test them out. The winning entry got 50 bucks and the recipe published in the magazine. Within a year, Ebony's revenue from food advertising increased 50%. Now the food section was growing, just like the rest of the business had been for a while. Johnson was publishing five magazines by the time Charlotte started working there. They'd moved into a fancy office building on Michigan Ave, one of the most prestigious addresses in America. The building was one of the first in downtown Chicago designed by a black architect. Charlotte says everything about it was first class, especially the parties. They served the absolute primo quality shrimp. <laughs> uh, I have a good friend now that we still, when we talk about ebony, we go, shrimp. <laughs> you still remember the shrimp? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, was yes. it about the shrimp? Tell me about the shrimp. Well, they were delicious. I mean, they were huge. Was it like shrimp cocktail style or it was cooked some other way? No, it was shrimp cocktail style. They were big. Like they pa- were big. Pastor d'oeuvres, big yeah. and juicy. And yeah, bigger right. than most people were used to seeing. But that's just an example of the primo quality you would find at Ebony Magazine, at Johnson Publishing right, Company. Right, right. Who wouldn't want to work at the Ebony Building? especially if you worked in food. Because along with everything else in the building, there was a state-of-the-art test kitchen. So should we go check out the Ebony Test Kitchen? Sounds good. All right. As we walk in 2005, John Johnson died. A few years later, the Great Recession hit. That, combined with general hard times for magazines, forced Johnson Publishing to sell the building on Michigan Ave. It sat vacant for years, until 2017, when a developer decided to turn it into apartments. The test kitchen, where Charlotte worked, would be destroyed. But at the last minute, a team of preservationists at Landmarks, Illinois, swooped in to find it a new home. The Museum of Food and Drink in New York acquired it. The kitchen was dismantled, moved to New York, and reassembled in the Africa Center in Harlem. That's where I met up with Charla. Wow. We entered the kitchen. I had seen pictures of it. I knew it would be colorful, but it is so much brighter in person. How would you even describe the pattern on these walls, Charla? I would describe the walls as vibrantly colored, more of a psychedelic pattern. Orange would be the dominant right, this, color, this pattern. I think. All the walls, cabinets, even the front of the dishwasher, it swirls of color, mostly day-glow orange, with red, purple, and olive green mixed in. And one of the things that the decor does is it communicates the vibrancy of the African-American consumer market. And coming from Kraft, our kitchen at Kraft, was beige. So this was certainly an eye-opener to come in here. Right. It feels like just the just the decor, the way this place looks, makes it feel like a lot is happening here. Yes. <laughs> and there were days when there was a lot going on, <laughs> literally, in the Ebony Test Kitchen. It's not super big, about the size of a standard home kitchen. But the appliances, they were high-tech when the kitchen was built in the early 70s. Microwave, trash compactor, wall-mounted can opener, two dishwashers. General Electric power scrub, two-speed, Americana line. And, of course, it looks 
old fashioned now, but I mean. It was top of the line. Right. Uh, cutting. In the center of the kitchen, there's an island with a six burner stove. And on one wall, there's an opening, a pass through window, like you'd see in a restaurant where the cooks put the food up to be taken out to the dining room. Charlotte would put dishes she was testing out on the counter for employees to try and have them vote on their favorites. If I was working at a place with a test kitchen and a pass-through counter, I would make a point of walking past that pass-through yes, counter yes. quite a bit. No samples? Okay, I guess we'll be yeah. back in a half an hour yeah. then, see the yeah. many samples later. <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of foot traffic. <laughs> and back in the day, on the other side of that pass-through window were the elevators. Ebony was a regular stop for black celebrities at the time. So when those elevator doors opened... You never knew who you might meet. The Jacksons, who were originally from Gary, Indiana. Of course. They would come over to the building on a case. So you never knew. As I said to Charlotte, when she was working at Ebony in the 80s, it was a time when, technically, segregation was long past. But in practice... It was not. Right. So from that perspective, what was it like to have this kind of a space? Well, it gave you a real sense of pride that a black man from Arkansas had built this. When you say you represent Ebony Magazine, people will pay attention and they will listen to what you're saying. Charlotte spent two years as Ebony's food editor. It was an early stop in a long career in food. She went on to be the food editor at Southern Living Magazine and worked in communications at Campbell's Soup. Today, she runs her own food marketing company. How does it feel to be back in here? Well, it feels, you know, certainly very nostalgic. And uh, I'm glad they were able to save the Ebony Kitchen. I was living in Alabama when the building was sold. And that made me very sad because, I mean, it's just a piece of history here. What what part of the Ebony Test Kitchen and Ebony's food coverage more broadly do you feel like we can see in food media today? Well, there's so many people who are making a space in food media where maybe 25 years ago, there was not space for so many voices. You have Tony Tipton Martin, who is now the editor-in-chief for Cook's Country Magazine. There's Bryant Terry, who's a chef from the West Coast, and he's written that phenomenal book, Black Food. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are many more. We'll be hearing from others as this series progresses. It's true that in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests, media outlets have shown more interest in Black voices. But Sharla also tells me she's putting together a proposal for a cookbook of her own, and she started shopping it around. Well, you know that saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And one of the comments that I got was, well, do you know how many black cookbooks there already are? And I knew. And I said, but on the other hand, do you know how many Italian cookbooks there are? There have been significant inroads. There is a place at the table for more African-Americans and people of color today. And then there are also instances where you couldn't get a seat at the table. Well, let's build our own table. Yeah. 
Today, Ebony's gone the way of so many magazines. It's digital only, no more print editions. But the legacy of their food coverage lives on in the next generation of Black Americans working in food media, some of whom will feature in parts two and three of our series. Next week, we hear from Nicole Taylor, who's written a new cookbook for Juneteenth and Black celebrations. She calls the book a love letter to Black people, but says it's really for anyone who wants to cook something special and delicious for Juneteenth. She'll explain why she included a recipe for grilled watermelon, despite the fruit's connection to racist tropes. I know that for many decades, Black people and watermelon were linked to really ugly ads. But for me... As I moved through this cookbook, I had to block that noise out. I had to move forward with centering joy and centering what I know for so many black folks is a very fond memory of summer, of communing, of tradition. That's next week in part two of our series, By Us, For Everyone. If you want to see the Ebony Test Kitchen for yourself, the Museum of Food and Drinks African American Exhibit at the Africa Center in New York runs through June 19th. Get more info at mofad.org. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producers Andres O'Hara and Johanna Mayer. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Additional editing by Halle Bay Ramdeen, Alexis Williams, and Oluwakemi Aladasuyi. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Special thanks to E. James West and Charlotte Lyons. And a special thank you to Peter Clowney, former Sporkful editor turned Sporkful executive producer who leaves Stitcher this week. Thank you, Peter, for all your support. Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Eric Eddings. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Fig in Chicago, Illinois, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Better.